I'm a product of the builder generation. My father was 88 when he died uh, almost two years ago, and so I'm one of the builder's children and sort of more of a builder than a boomer in my particular age group. Dad was a very hardworking individual, and he taught his three children to work hard. Dad never made much money, but we never were in debt. He never borrowed money for a car. We fixed everything uh, in the house. It didn't matter if we knew how to do it or not. We figured it out. That's how we grew up. And Steve and I were taught everything from electronics to mechanics to painting. Uh, My oldest uh, sister is also a very hard worker. And he produced in us this attitude that you go try, you roll up your sleeves, you get sweaty, you get dirty, you go try it again, you don't stop, you learn. And all three of his children are products of that great ethic that is uh, a great gift. He told us often, just do the best you can, don't, don't stop. Uh, do a little more than the average person. Go to work a little more eager. Be willing to take on a job. And so by high school, I was working two part-time jobs. My last two years of high school, I went to school early in the morning, work, study day. Then I worked two part-time jobs, got home at 10 every night, uh, all my junior and senior year. On Saturdays, worked a 10 or 12-hour day, either at a photo lab or a backpacking store. I made money. I bought a brand-new truck in 1974, a four-wheel drive truck, outfitted it, had kayaks and mountaineering equipment and backpack equipment. And every chance I had, I was backpacking, climbing, kayaking, and trying to be a trout fisherman. I didn't quite learn how to do that. But uh, I would go to Colorado, to the Gila Wilderness area, to Bridger Wilderness area, to Montana, to Idaho. I've packed all over, and I wanted to do those things so badly that I was willing to work those jobs to get that money, to have that stuff, to go do what I wanted to do. I was willing to do it because I loved it so much. When Cindy and I married, 1980, from our first date into our wedding was nine months. And I would do anything to get her to marry me, even deceive her. And so we got married, and I was so in love with love that I was going to do whatever it took to court that woman to get her to marry me. And we got married, and I brought her into my world. And then I would take my motorcycle and backpacking and climbing, and I would go with my buddies and go backpacking and bike riding and all the things that I did. And I had a trophy wife at home. And our first year was, well, let's just say less than joyful. It was miserable. We had a horrible first year of marriage. And I'm not a noble person. I'm not telling you this out of nobility. But that passage, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, started hitting me on both sides of the head. I still remember when I sold my kayak and I had a custom-made paddle. And those of you who know things about these, uh, a custom-made paddle is a work of art. The different woods they glue together. And I remember giving it to this guy for a fraction of what I paid and watching him drive away with my kayak and my paddle. And I got rid of the motorcycle the next year. And I quit climbing and gave what climbing gear I had away. And I didn't do all the stuff that I used to do with my single friends. Because if I was going to love Cindy the way Christ loved the church, I couldn't, nothing wrong with those things, but I was doing those things to exclusion of my wife. You see, if I love Cindy the way I'm supposed to, I have to pay a price. But in paying that price, in almost 32 years of marriage, there's no person on the planet I'd rather spend a day with, or travel with, or waste a day with, or do nothing with, than my wife. By the way, this is for free. (laughs) Husbands, if you would start to love your wives that much more than you do now, as Christ loved the church, your marriage problems would go away. 
Because most men are the most selfish beasts on the planet. And when Jesus says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for... Stop right there. You don't need any more teaching on marriage and family. Die for her. So there's no nobility in quitting to do some. I had great memories as a teenager and a 20-something. I got to do things most people never get to do in those years. And you know what? I don't count them as loss. But I had to pay a price to learn to love Cindy the way Christ wants me to love her. And what I have now far exceeds what I could have ever understood in my expensing. We are looking at a passage today that is a very difficult passage of discipleship. It's found in Luke 14, 25. And this is going to thin the ranks. It would thin the ranks in Jesus' day and it will thin the ranks in some of you mentally before this morning is over. In this transition, Jesus is turning from dealing with the Jewish leaders and their traps about Sabbath and so forth, and he's now going to talk to the crowds. It's a very easy thing to see. I'll show it to you. As he has narrowed his direction to go to Jerusalem, now he's narrowing his scope, and he's only going to spend time with his disciples, primarily the apostles and a few hangers-on. He will dip in and out of conflict with the Jewish leaders, but he's narrowing his scope. He's going to Jerusalem, narrow direction, but now he's narrowing who he's spending time with, what he's saying, what he's telling them, what he's teaching them, and the heat is turned up on what it means to be a disciple. Some of you are very disciplined Bible students, and this passage might sound like Matthew 10. Just FYI, I think these are two different occasions. I won't lose sleep if you think they're one and the same, but I think there's enough differential between the two that they're two different experiences. Let me give you the overview because it's a little, a little heavy, and we'll come back and look at it in detail. The overview is this. If you're going to be a disciple, your allegiance has to be to Christ completely, first priority in everything. Jesus is going to give you two absolute statements to explain that you got to hate your family and bear your cross. Then he's going to give us two illustrations about building a tower or a king going to war. And then he's going to say, you've got to get rid of your possessions. And finally, he's going to use a cryptic expression about if salt loses its salt taste, what do you do with it? It's a little bit cumbersome. Let me do it one more time. If you're going to follow Christ as your single priority, your allegiance to Christ... You've got to hate your family and carry your cross. He illustrates it with building a tower and a king going to war. And oh, by the way, your possessions are going to get in the way too. And oh, by the way, if you don't have salt, if the taste isn't there, I can't make it salty again. The big picture is for you to follow Christ, your life has to take a farther and farther and lower and lower priority after your passion, your commitment, your time, your energy, will you pay the cost to be his disciple? That's what this passage is about. Verse 25, large crowds were going along with him. And he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
So he's thinning the herd. The Pharisees have failed to teach the Jewish people how to follow God. And that's what he is upbraiding them for in the prior sections. Now he's turning, and it's a, it's a literal and metaphorical thing. He's turning to the crowds. They're not doing their job. He's turned his back, verse 24, about those invited to the banquet. He's turning his backs on those who aren't accepting the invitation. And he speaks to those who are following him, saying, If you want to follow me, don't do what they've been telling you to do. Do what I'm telling you to do, because this is what God wants you to do. And this is a huge fissure, a chalk line, if you will, theologically. So to thin the herd, he's going to say, to all people. Now, I personally believe he's talking to not just the converted, but the crowd. Because we can never know in the New Testament, when the crowds were following Jesus, it'd be wrong to make the presumption they all believe in him. Because they're going out to see this thing. What's going on? We've heard of miracles, of, of uh, rumors of miracles, and people getting fed. And we've heard of this great catch of fish, and a guy walking on water and healing sick people. So they're coming out to see the show. So Christ is now going to turn up the heat and thin the herd. Notice verse 26. Look at the litany of hate again. You hate your own father, mother, wife, children, brother. Does that mean you, lo- you say, I hate you, mom and dad, I'm leaving? Look at the context. Context covers a multitude of interpretational sins. He says in verse 26, and his own life. You see it there? Even his own life. What is Christ saying? Is Christ saying you have to loathe your family of origin? That you hate them and throw them under the bus? You hate your own life? You beat yourself? Is that what he's saying? No. What he's saying is your allegiance to me as a disciple is so profound, is so deep, is so huge, is so blatantly out there that the way you love me in comparison to the way you look at the world, it looks as almost you don't care about them. You don't even care about your family. You don't even care. Of course, the scripture teaches to honor your parents, to have high respect for those elders. In the pastoral epistles, Paul will give young Timothy instruction about how to be kind and appeal to an older man. We're not to throw people under a bus. Jesus is saying here, compared to the way you love the world versus love me, it should look like you hate the world. Notice, however, and I think the and I'm going to show you why I argue this. Verse 26, his own life. My priorities, my wants, my desires, my dreams are being set aside because I'm going to be a disciple of Christ. And the priority, my key allegiance as a follower, a student of, a servant of Jesus is, this stuff all takes back burner. And it continues in the way he explains it. Look at verse 26 and 27. Two times, cannot be my disciple cannot be my disciple. Verse 31, drop down. He says, um, he, uh, he says, none of you can be my disciple. Three times in this text, he's saying, if you don't love me, if you don't follow me this way, you cannot be a disciple of mine. The chalk lines are getting drawn in permanent ink. To have allegiance to him is, in the first century, when you left Judaism to follow Jesus, it would not be like a person leaving Islam to follow Jesus. It would not be too different than a person leaving the state uh, religion of China, the state church of China, and becoming an out Christian. You are are leaving and going into danger. Today we change churches, 
you know, like we change cars or change clothes or buy a new home. It's no big deal. Oh, someone might say, why are you going to that church for? What do you believe that now? But you're not going to be thrown out for the Jews, apo synagogue. You're out of the synagogue. You no longer have the ability to relate to that community. You're out of here. If you saw a fiddler on the roof, you know, I don't have that. The daughter doesn't exist anymore. Well, today we don't feel that brunt, but they did in the first century. You can't be a Republican and a Democrat. You can't be a Vol and a Tide fan at the same time. Can you? If you have a, you know, two children going to two schools, it's, it's not, not fun. It's going to be bipolarity at best, right? I mean, you're going to love hate. You can't be in the same, same space at one time. If you're going to follow the rabbi, Jesus, you can't follow the rabbis. You have to follow him. Now, 1 Corinthians 7 tells us another illustration of why we don't throw our family away. When Paul is instructing people who've come to Christ out of a Gentile background, and they say, well, I came to Christ, but my husband isn't a believer in Jesus. What does he say? Remain in the condition in which you were called. Meaning, when you were called to salvation, you stay there. As long as you can, you stay there. Maybe you'll be the influence that'll help your spouse come to Christ. And that whole passage, remain in the condition you're called. Remain, remain, remain. So, through life, we're not to abandon and jettison relationships just because they're difficult That would be contrary to so much of what Scripture says. So context about the cost of discipleship is, compared to the way you love me, it all appears, though, you don't care about, you hate the relationships, the networks of the world. It is an absolute that he must be your priority. The second difficult cost is this carry your own cross. It was introduced in Luke chapter 9. We began talking about it. This is a very complex subject, but I want to make it very shoe leather oriented. First of all, in the New Testament language of Greek, there is a particular verbal, uh, uh, we talk about past, present, future, and perfect future, and so forth. In Greek, there, a present active is an ongoing verb. So you can almost put an ing on these verbs. To read it another way, it would be like whoever is not continuing to carry his cross and whoever is not continuing to keep on coming after me all the time. That's what the present tense means in Greek. Some of your Bibles have an asterisk and they'll say present tense. And if you read the foreword of your Bible, which I know you did when you bought it, you read the whole foreword, the first 20 pages that no one ever reads, and it explains those markings in there, and they're very helpful, by the way. And those little markings say a present active means an ongoing activity. So if you're going to follow him, it's you're following him all the time. You're carrying your cross all your life. You're going to go after him as the disciple all your life. So the present active is much more vivid than the way we read it in English. Now in the first century, uh, they did not carry the T-shaped cross that's depicted over here, for example. They carried one part of it, the cross beam called the patibulum. And it was just the beam that would be over their shoulders. And they put their hands like this and they would carry it through the town. This thing could weigh 300 plus pounds. You can't carry that. No one can carry that. Plus being flogged and mocked and spit on and beaten and tripped as you're going. So you just carried the cross beam, if you will. And those vertical, the part of the cross was stationary in the ground. And you were lifted up on it and and crucified. And he's saying, carry your cross. Now, the cross has lots of interpretations. This is where I think it, it ends, when you study it till you're dizzy. Will you follow him when life is hard? Will you follow him when the path is very difficult? Will you follow him when it's lonely? 
Will you follow him when the voices of the world tell you otherwise? Will you follow him when you're in pain? Will you follow him when you have cancer or a chronic disease or live in chronic disability? Will you follow him when your husband breaks your heart? Will you follow him when your wife breaks your heart? Will you follow him when one of your children breaks your heart? Will you follow him when your closest friend dies, tragically? Will you follow him when someone betrays you or sues you? Will you follow him when life is not fair and doesn't work the way you think it should? Will you follow him when all the props are gone? Will you bear your cross? That's what I think it means. Because there's an ongoing activity not to be crucified. In that first century, they would have a very common picture of a person carrying a patibulum. They would see them in the old city of Jerusalem when it was time to execute criminals. And it was not on a hill far away. It was ground level just outside the gate of the city. Why? It's a great crime deterrent. You don't need little stickers and little safe houses when you come into the old city. You see a bunch of crucified bodies on crosses. Hmm, I better obey the law when I'm in that town. That's what the Romans do to people that break the law. So this would be a common picture to them. What is Jesus saying? When you're passed over, when you don't get the award, when the burden is heavy, when you're fired unrighteously. That's what carrying, I believe, your cross means. The ongoing willingness to follow him no matter what the world, the flesh, and the devil tell you. And I'll say it to the last time I preach. Don't let the world teach you theology. Don't let your experiences tell you about your God. Never let your experiences tell you about your God. Let God's word and God's spirit and God's people help you understand. But don't let the world tell you. In my experiences, the world is almost always telling me the wrong data. Almost always telling me the wrong data. It has to be centered on the authority of his word through his spirit and with his people walking with me to keep me on track, to keep me on target when the world, the flesh, and the devil and everything that I think is wrong and corrupted and co-opted. That's a disciple. Told you it was hard. He uses two illustrations now, building a tower and a king going to battle. Verse 28. Which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. The two rhetorical questions here, the tower could be for a city, a vineyard, or a very large compound. So this man is going to build a compound. Notice what he says. Look at 28. He will first sit down and calculate. I love that picture. Before you go to build, you better sit down and get your ledger out, get your Excel sheet up, and you better see, can you afford this? Do you have what it takes to do this thing? This is not an invitation to an ice cream social. This is an invitation for a life-changing experience. When Cindy and I lived in Texas, there was a neighborhood of one-story homes that we passed through. A couple times a week, we would drive on this, this one road. And uh, some homeowner uh, decided he was going to add a second story to his house. So he went to Home Depot, and he bought a bunch of materials. And he had put uh, the, um, the studs and sort of the A-frame and sort of scabbed out some of the rooms. And he'd not done anything since. 
In fact, the roof that he was building on was still, uh, uh, he hadn't taken, taken the roof down and built a new plate. He just had put the studs on it. And we were all going, how's he going to ever take that original roof off and start putting decking for his, his room? What's he going to do? Well, the lumber turned silver and weathered and warped. And for years, it sat unfinished. And every time we drove by, we would make a comment about, I wonder how that guy's wife feels when she pulls into her house every time she comes home. And it stuck out because it was the only one in the neighborhood that was two stories. Years later, we returned to that part of Texas and the, whoever owned the home had taken it off and put a new roof on and landscaped it and it looked beautiful. And I suspect they had to sit down and calculate the cost of getting rid of that old structure and putting it right. Jesus says, if you're going to have allegiance to me, look at verse 28. Sit down and calculate the cost. Look to see if he has enough to complete it. Oh, it's going to cost X amount of money to put the addition on my home, to buy a lake house, to buy a rental property, to get into some limited lease partnership in some place we like to go. You better sit down and count the cost and figure out if you got enough to do it. Otherwise, you're going to be in big trouble. And the word ridicule here is the same word used when they ridiculed and mocked Jesus on his way to the crucifixion. The second rhetorical question has to do with a king and his army. Verse 31. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not... Same exact words. First, sit down and consider whether he is strong enough. The prior illustration, whether he has enough to complete it. This illustration, is he strong enough with 10,000 to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, when the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. The second rhetorical question, when a king goes to war, he better sit down and figure out if he can beat this other army. Now, this illustration is different than the builder, because now he's outnumbered two to one. And a wise king with his war counselors is going to go, okay, even if I got, you know, 10 William Wallaces, I got a bunch of just run-of-the-mill average guys with swords. And let's say it's, you know, let's say our guys can two to one kill some of those enemies. I still got a lot who can't kill one. And they probably got some guys that can kill two to one. And he's going to figure it out. This is not a good deal. I tell you what, before this begins, let's send a delegation. And the word, it's the word presbia. I love it. You know, a Presbyterian, presbyteros, that's the word elder. A Presbyterian is the session Send a presbya. Send a group that represents us wisely. Send a group way before he comes to battle and work out a peace agreement. Because I'm not going to lose my men and their families and potentially my kingdom. So I'm going to sit down and calculate the cost and I can't beat these odds. So I better go work for peace. So each of these illustrations has a little different nuance. The first one I think is a builder who says, I think I'm going to build a tower. It's his decision. The second one is something's coming to him he has to respond to. Now, I don't want to push the illustrations too far, but I think the always deliberate Jesus is doing something here that's genius. When you, when you build a tower, you make a decision to build a tower. That's coming to him. You make a decision. But when an enemy comes to you, you're forced into a decision. One of them you make on your own. Do I have enough money to build the tower? The other one is, they're knocking on the door, and you're going to lose. You better do something about it. 
One is to come to Jesus, the other is to follow after him. And I believe that's the point of the two illustrations. Now he goes to the possessions. You think that was hard? Look at this one, verse 33. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Keep the context in mind. Your own life, your own cross, and now your own possessions. Those of you who are Bible study people, don't miss that repetition. Own life, own cross, own possessions. Are you literally to beat up yourself and kill yourself your own life? Are you literally carrying your own cross? Are you literally giving away your possessions? Context covers a multitude of interpretational errors. And so far as it looks like the way you live, your life is unimportant because you're such a fervent, passionate follower, one who loves Jesus Christ. When it comes to the burdens of life that we all have, you're going to carry those even as you follow Christ and not whine and complain and moan about it. And when it comes to your possessions, they're going to take such a low priority in your life, they're not going to control your time and all your resources. You know, it's interesting. The older I get, I've changed a lot. In my younger years, I was I, I, acquisition of stuff. I mean, tools, backpacking stuff, climbing gear, mountaineering gear. I was acquisition of stuff. And as I've gotten older, I've learned to dispossess. Now, I'm not, again, setting myself up as an example. I'm setting myself up for as you get older, things change. When my father died and when a close friend died at 44, I was charged with getting rid of their stuff. When my friend who was 44 died with five children, I had to get rid of his stuff because his wife couldn't handle it. And when you go through somebody's stuff and decide what to throw away, what to give away, and when the family doesn't want to interact with it because it's just too difficult, and you feel like, I can't throw this stuff away, it somehow represents their daddy. It's a miserable thing. My father died to go through the stuff that he collected over 88 years of life. Took one ton of debris I took to the Houston dump. One ton of debris. And going through a person's affects is a horrible thing. I remember when my friend died, I put a post-it on my office back in Virginia. And it said, have you filled the trash can today? And I put it on the light switch. And I would go back every day and I would go through the files and I would fill up one trash can before I went home. And I go through seasons where I do that. I've been doing it recently at this office. I had a five-drawer filing cabinet and someone else needed it and they were going to trade it with a two. I thought, can I get it down to two or not? Didn't quite make it, but I got it down to four. Took me a day and a half to go through stuff and put it in a trash can. You know, some of the stuff I haven't looked at since 1984. But I was, this is really good stuff. I should keep this. Easily. You haven't looked at it since 1984. But it's really good. Maybe one day I'll look at it. Easily. You won't. It's like Gollum. No, you won't. Throw it away. You know? <laughs> no, you should keep it. No, throw it away. No, keep it. Throw it away. I haven't looked at it. But I hang on to it. You know, the bigger, better, newer, more stuff, the problem is you spend all your time taking care of the junk. You acquire more stuff, you got to take care of more stuff. This is a simple principle of life. What is Jesus saying? If you're going to follow me, your own life, your own burdens, and your own possessions can't be in the way of following me. Make sense? Your own life, your own burdens 
Wind your way through life, covet your way through life. Your possessions cannot obstruct your allegiance to me. If you're going to follow me, put that stuff aside. It'll look like you hate it. Does he really mean hate it and vilify it? No. The way you follow me so passionately, so obediently, so willingly, that stuff is going to mean nothing to you. The things of the earth grow strangely dim. And it's hard in a wealthy world. I consider myself wealthy. I consider myself very wealthy. If you've not traveled abroad, you don't understand what I'm saying. I am a very wealthy individual. And the stuff can get like moss on you and distract you from following Christ. The allegiance we have has to be to him. Is he your primary focus? Will it be difficult? Yes. Will it be costly? Yes. But if it's worth following the God-man, do you think the cost of following him will be offset at some point where your love for him and your relationship with him will overwhelm whatever cost you spent? And I would say yes. You see, if it's worth it, it will be worth it. But Jesus is being sober. Sit down. Figure it out. I don't want any half-hearted disciples. I don't want any milquetoast followers. The final warning is about salt, verse 34. Therefore, salt is good. But even if salt has become tasteless, with, with what will it be seasoned it is useless either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I have studied this for, oh, over the years, probably 100 hours. And I will tell you, it is a difficult passage. Some believe the, the Dead Sea salts lost their salt content. And Jesus is making a comparison that once salt loses its taste, you can't. And some go into wisdom and it's unbelievable. I'm going to go back to when the plain sense makes common sense, it's foolish sense to seek another sense. <laughs> Context covers a multitude of interpretational sins. What does this mean on face value? If salt no longer tastes like salt, you can't make it salty again. Is that a fair understanding of what he's saying? If it loses its taste, how do you make it salty again? It's useless. So what's he bookending this about? Either you're following me or you're not. Either you're my disciple or you're not. And I think the passage marks very abruptly at the end. You either are or you aren't. I cannot make you taste like a disciple. You either are one or you're not. A couple of lessons. Number one, failure to be a disciple can be related to a number of things. One, it can be related to a person who doesn't know Christ. He's talking to a crowd in the context, so I would argue that crowd, a lot of those people aren't yet following Jesus. They haven't trusted in Christ and Christ alone. When we, Lloyd has very passionately in the recent weeks, and we've inter, intentionally been talking more about, are you sure of your salvation? Have you placed your trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? Nothing you can do will ever get his attention. Nothing I've done will ever get his attention. Only what Christ has done gets his attention. 
When you believe, you put your trust in, you put your faith in Jesus to do for you what you can never do by yourself or for yourself. He did it on your behalf, in your place instead of you. He paid for your sins, which you can't pay for. He gave you forgiveness of your sins, which you can't get your own forgiveness. He absolved you of the consequences and he gives you a free gift called eternal life. If you do not know that you know that you know that you know for sure you've trusted in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, you are not saved. Those are Christ's words summarized and paraphrased. It is by faith, by by grace through faith, not of your works. No man can boast. So that's our passion, that you know Christ. Now, if you know Christ, second part of that, are you a follower? Are you a disciple? And I would say there's two prongs to that. One is, are you really sure you trusted him? (laughs) If you walked the aisle and prayed the prayer when you were five or eight or 12, and your life hasn't grown significantly or changed, Ask the question, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. That's why I go back to the benchmark illustration I've used many times. They climb to Long's Peak, 14,257 feet. They hammer the benchmark in the top of the mountain. That's how tall it is. It's settled once for all. You have to have a benchmark. This is when I trusted Christ. I understood I was a sinner, separated from God. I understood he loved me, died in my place, on my behalf. And after that, there should be some growth. If I am not growing and I'm a stagnant believer, one of two possibilities. I really didn't come to Christ, or I haven't grown. A disciple is a person who's always growing. doesn't mean your life is a perfect trajectory like you wish the Tao was, or the economy, or your paycheck. It means that I can look back a year or two and see that I'm a little less selfish than I was. I can look back the last year, two, three, and say, I'm not as anxious as I used to be. I can look back and say, you know, I'm not as, my head isn't turned as often by those sins as it once was. That I'm a little better husband to my wife. I put her needs before mine a little more readily. That I try to love my kids in ways, very difficult ways sometimes, to train them to become the men and women I want them to be. None of us is perfect. But if you can't look back and see some change and growth and maturity in your life, I'm a little more patient, a little more forgiving, a little more whatever your issue is. Then I ask you, are you growing? A disciple is a person who wants to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, and it outweighs everything else. Don Marquis wrote a little story called The Lesson of the Moth, and with this I close. I was talking to a moth the other evening. He was trying to break into an electric light bulb and fry himself on the wire. Why do you fellows pull this stunt, I asked him. Is this the conventional thing for moths? Or why, if that had been an uncovered candle instead of a light bulb, you would now be a small, unsightly cinder. Have you no sense? The moth replied, plenty of it. But at times we get tired of using it. We get bored with the routine, and we crave beauty and excitement. Fire is beautiful, and we know that if we get too close, it will kill us. But what does it matter? It is better to be happy for a moment and burned up with beauty than to live a long time and be bored all the while. So we wad our life up into one little roll, and we shoot the roll. That's what life is for. It's better to be part of beauty and exist for one instant than to live forever 
and never be part of beauty. Our attitude is come easy, go easy. We're like humans were before you became so civilized. Before I could argue him out of his philosophy, Marquis writes, he went and immolated himself on a patented cigar lighter. I do not agree with him. Myself, I would rather have half the happiness and twice the longevity. But at the same time, there was something I wanted. I wished I wanted something as badly as he wanted to fry himself on the wire. What do you want? What do you want so badly that you pay the price? And if you love him, do you want what he wants for you? He wants you to be his disciple. In your own life, in your own burdens, in your own possessions, have to take a prioritization that he is more important. It's worth the cost if you want it.